The following podcast is part of the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network. Are you looking for a new and empowering lens through which to view your life and your health? Then register now for Get Healthy with Sound, a weekend workshop with Eileen McCusick, an innovator in the fields of therapeutic sound, electric health, and the human biofield. May 24th to 26th at Omega Institute in Rhinebeck, New York. Learn easy and accessible techniques to reduce stress, improve focus, and increase energy. Learn more today at eomega.org slash thrive. All are welcome. We're glad you found us. Unity Online Radio. The voice of an awakening world. better get healthy and help animals welcome to main street vegan with your host victoria moran back in the 1930s a hollywood writer named j allen boone had the occasion to dog sit for a famous movie canine of the era named strongheart He was so impressed with the ability that Strongheart had to communicate both with his body and telepathically that Boone made it his life's work to look into the communicative abilities of other than human beings. And he wrote about this in a 1954 book called Kinship with All Life. But as he writes about Strongheart, and other animals, the last several chapters are devoted to his relationship, a short one, but a relationship nonetheless, with a housefly he named Freddy. After reading that book back in my 20s, I was never able to dismiss flies in quite the same way I had prior to that. But in all the decades since, I haven't known of anyone to pay attention to such a little, and most people would say inconsequential creature, and present that for the general public to read. Until now, with Superfly, the unexpected lives of the world's most successful insects. Hi, everybody. I'm Victoria Moran, host of the Main Street Vegan Program. I am so happy to have you with us as ever. And I am also totally tickled about my guest today because he is one of my favorite people. He writes books that nobody else would write. And he does it in such a compelling fashion that we are going to be so excited today listening and learning from Jonathan Balcom, Ph.D. He is a biologist and an ethologist. That means someone who studies the behavior of other than human beings. His books include Pleasurable Kingdom, Second Nature, The Exultant Ark, and What a Fish Knows, as well as his newest title, Superfly, 
just published by Penguin Books. And he's also got a children's storybook on the way, Jake and Ava, A Boy and a Fish. You can look for that this fall. Welcome, Jonathan Balcom. Hi, Victoria. Great to be here. Well, I did not expect what was going to happen when I started reading this book. I thought, okay, you like Jonathan. He's a smart guy. He's a good writer. But even though I learned about Freddie long years ago, do I really want to read a book about flies? And I opened it in the middle and it's like, oh my gosh, I want to read it word for word, cover to cover. And I've managed to get through about close to half. This book reads like a novel. It's a fly novel. How did this happen? Well, as you well know, because we've known each other for years, I've always been completely smitten and fascinated by all walks of animal life. And that includes insects. And in fact, the, the first animal life that many children, I think young children, become somewhat acquainted with, with the exception maybe of the family cat or dog, is the insects they, they, may, fly, they may, may find when they go outside. And I was no exception. By the time I could walk, I was exploring the backyard and discovering all sorts of little creatures and relating to them. So it was a real joy to uh, write and research and re write this book. And I, I commend my literary agent for recognizing that it was a subject worthy of attention. Well, that was another question that I had for you as a fellow author. And I know that nowadays, especially the book business is in great transition and everybody is trying to read the market and what will a publisher go for? What will the market be ready for? Do I have enough followers on Instagram to sell this book? And Penguin <laughs> wanted this incredible book about flies. Now, I know you have a wonderful reputation and you've sold a lot of books, but how hard was it for your agent to get them to say, oh, yeah, we like this? Well, it probably didn't hurt that I was writing on the coattails of my previous book, What a Fish Knows, which which did do very well. Um, I, I can tell you it was the, 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 the publishing response, publisher response was underwhelming. I mean, there were a couple of offers and they were very modest compared to what was offered for the fish book. Uh, nevertheless, Penguin stepped up to the plate and, you know, they're big and they've got resources and we were happy to to work with them and they they've really been a great pleasure to work with and uh you know it's a little early to tell how well the book will will do but early signs are that it is it is proportionately selling less than the fish book did proportional to yeah. the kind of contract they got but you know i'm i'm in the process of doing reviews apparently the print edition of the new york times review books on july july 11th will have a review of the book hopefully favorable but it, but just getting in there is a good thing so that should help boost it Oh, that's wonderful. That's exciting. So who do you see as your target reader for this book? Uh, human beings, primarily. Um, <laughs> that's my cheeky answer for anyone. I, I, you know, Obviously, it's written for grown-ups, but I might try and follow it up with a, a younger reader version. But, um, you know, everybody, and everybody, I mean everybody, has experiences with insects, and everybody has experiences with flies. If you If you venture outside, and even if you don't, you're going to come into contact with flies, be it a house fly on the windowsill. If you go hiking, you know, just about everybody's had, had exposure to mosquitoes, for better or worse. They are true flies, so they're part of the picture. 
And uh, because we all have experiences, unfortunately, often negative experiences, but nevertheless, we've had contact with them. They affect our lives. They're sort of nature's entrepreneurs and they invade our space and often annoy us, but they are incredibly important. So, uh, you know, that's my roundabout way of saying I hope that everyone reads this book, obviously. Well, tell us about its subject. I mean, I'm sure I will meet a fly in the next few days. What should I know about him or her? Yeah, it probably helps to define what it, what exactly is a fly because it's, it can be confusing. I mean, we, we hear about dragonflies and there's things like stoneflies and other groups of insects that are not true flies. What defines a true fly in the order Diptera, and that's Greek for diptera, which is two wings, is that they have only two wings, whereas all other flying insects have four wings. Granted, the beetles have their, the outer wing is hardened into a shell called an elytron. Um, but uh, there's four wings there. The flies, the, their hind wing, a long time ago, maybe maybe t- tens, hundreds of millions of years ago, got modified into a what looks like a, a baton, baton twirler's baton. It's a little stick with a knob at the end of it, and it's called a halter, and it's used to stabilize flight. Uh, so the two wings is what distinguishes flies. That's a useful characteristic because some flies mimic bees. Bees and wasps uh, in another group, Hymenoptera, all have four wings, but the hind wing is sometimes a little hard to spot, and bees have taken advantage of that. It pays to look like a stinging insect because uh, birds and other potential predators might avoid you, um, but there are no flies with stings. There are some flies with, as we know, biting mouthparts, but none that sting. So start at the very beginning in the evolutionary cycle of things. Where did flies show up and what have they been doing all this time? Yeah, I don't know exactly when they came came to be uh, within the insects. I can tell you that, that insects are fabulously successful. Uh, 80% of all animal species on planet Earth right now as we speak is an insect. And probably considerably more than that in terms of numbers, individual numbers or insects. It's estimated there are about a high, one, one and a half billion insects for every human on Earth. And if you do the math, that gets you into the, I think, the quintillions of insects, 10 with 18 zeros, I believe that is. There are an estimated 20 million flies per human, and there's over 160,000 destru- described species of flies on all seven continents on Earth. And, and that 160 60,000 is considered to be a gross underestimate. It's, it's estimated that there's probably up to five times that many yet to be described by human beings. So suffice to say that insects are incredibly successful and within them, the flies are among the most successful and probably the most species rich. There are probably more kinds of flies than any other groups of insects, never, never mind other animals on, on the planet. So... We use this word sentient a lot, at least in the animal rights world. I know Marianne Sullivan, the wonderful animal rights attorney, is always saying, we have to stop using this word because nobody else knows what it means. But (laughs) it means, can they feel? So let's use it one more time. (laughs) Are insects sentient? It's a huge question and a really important one. And I devote an entire chapter of my book to that question. 
Um, I would say yes. Uh, it seems that most experts or certainly many of the most notable insect biologists past and present have concluded that they are sentient on some level, that they have the capacity to feel. Um, among the evidence supporting that is that they have differentiated brains with complex parts to their brains. They are mobile organisms. They can move away from bad things and they can move towards good things. And th that's a key hallmark of what we might expect to turn into a sentient being. They have a nervous system. And they do things, they have cognition, they appear to be conscious, they, they learn, they remember, they have some certain species of insects have face recognition, such as wasps. Um, ants have passed the mirror self-recognition test, where if you put a, say, a, a blue dot on an ant's forehead and put her in front of a mirror, she will stop preen herself, step back, sort of regard herself in the mirror. It looks like she's noticing that it's weird. And if in control experiments where it's a it's a black dot that, that blends in with the color of the ant or a dot at the back of the head, there's various control experiments. They don't react that way. So that's an interesting study. There's tool use by various insects. There's observational learning by bumblebees. Honeybees, of course, are famous for their waggle dance where they are able to communicate information about the richness, the distance, and the direction of a food source in the dark of the cave by doing this this waggle dance, as it's called. Um, rational, as, as for flies specifically, they, the study showing they have an attention span, they have rational de decision making. Females who see um, uh, that a male is popular with other females will tend to favor that male. It's sort of a I'll have what she's having phenomenon. And transitive logic, which is where the, the idea that if A is greater than B and B is greater than C, it follows that A must be greater than C. Flies in experiments with, with courtship and male fighting contests show the ability to make that rational, that transitive logic. So these are some of the some of the the cognitive supports for the idea that insects are sentient. Just one other thing to mention, of course, and, and that's the whole pain and the whole pain and pleasure dichotomy. Um, as I mentioned, pain is useful. Um, insects and flies included have a have a more will respond in a dose dependent manner to morphine, a pain relieving drug. Insects who've had flies who've had uh, a leg amputated will will show a hyper sensitivity for weeks afterwards, whereas flies who haven't had an injury won't show hypersensitivity. This is called allodynia, and it also occurs in humans. So that's a very quick summary of some of the evidence supporting sentience in insects and flies included. Well, that sounds like a lot of sentience. My goodness. <laughs> and because you have this question on your list, I, I didn't want to just jump right in with it, but you alluded to it. Do flies enjoy sex? They sure seem to. Uh, sex gets pretty colorful for flies. I like to say that uh, fly sex comes in 50 shades of brown, but really, <laughs> given the beautiful colors of flies, it comes in a lot of other colors as well. There's male competition over females. There's courtship, sometimes quite complex courtship behavior, sort of foreplay. There's kissing in some species. Um, there's various forms of mounting, and uh, there's rejection by females. There's acceptance. Uh, there's songs. Some flies buzz their wings at very high speeds, over a thousand times per second in some cases, to produce 
tones, sounds, which are loosely described as songs or serenades. They're flies that fan their wings. There's even one species of fly that has a, the males of which have a, some asymmetrical wings. It's the only known winged creature on Earth where one wing is a different size and shape from the other. Uh, that seems like a pretty bizarre handicap given that wings are surely more important for flight than anything else. But apparently this species puts more value on courtship or perhaps trying to impress females. Uh, one of the theories to explain that is that uh, if a if a female regards a male fly, or if a male fly is is fit to court a female, and yet despite that he he survived despite having asymmetrical wings, he must have very good quality genes. That's called the uh, handicap hypothesis. It is just an idea. Who knows what's going on? It's too bad we can't just hold a mic out to them and ask them what's going on. But suffice to say that sex is pretty um, interesting in flies and, and it was a very fun chapter to research and write about was the chapter on fly sex. Well, and I think the one on fly cognition, I mean, because I've just gotten through that one. Are you awake? Evidence for insect minds. Can you let us in a little bit on uh, what they're thinking? That's that's the big challenge you know one of the, probably the, the the hardest problem in science is is knowing the consciousness and the experience of another and, and not to sound too pessimistic but we will probably never know for sure uh, we can't even get inside the brain of a, and mind of another human so it's very challenging to try to understand what they may be experiencing nevertheless we can do experiments such as uh, put a fruit fly in a rotating drum these experiments, uh, needless to say, are not always friendly to the subjects. In this case, the fly has to be tethered, so they use a little blob of, of warm wax to tether the fly. So the fly is kind of in one place, facing forward. Then they put them in a rotating drum, and you put a, you can put, a, for instance, a symbol, like, say, an X, a big letter X on the inside of the drum, which rotates around every three or four seconds. And the, you can see that there's a there's a burst of brain activity in the fly whenever the X goes by. But as the X continues to go by, it gets boring, apparently, and there's a less of a burst. And after a few rotations, the fly has kind of lost interest. And then if you suddenly change it to an O or, or whatever, another symbol, boom, there's a big burst of brain activity again when it goes by because there's something new, something that grabs their attention. And another hallmark of attention, besides becoming tired of the same stimulus and interested in a new one, is that you're less distractible. If, you're, if your attention is engaged, if you're focused on something, you don't notice a picture of, a, say, another fly off to your right. And flies who are engaged with a visual stimulus don't notice and are not as easily distracted. So, so that's an example of one experimental approach to trying to probe into the mind of a fly. Another research group actually... Uh, again, not very fly-friendly. They they anesthetized flies, fruit flies, which are already tiny, and they cut a little window into the top of the head, and they put a, a, a clear layer over that so they could literally peer inside the head. And uh, using, I guess, electrodes, they were able to, to watch different colors indicating activity in the brain while the fly was engaged in courtship behavior or some other behavior related to food or sex. Um, it showed that the fly's brain is is engaged in, in ways that is, seems to be complex. It's not just the fly brain lights up or doesn't light up. There's red areas, yellow areas, white areas. Uh, it's just suggestive of a complex response to stimuli in their environment. Fascinating. So these people that are doing this research, and I understand that 
almost none have vegan values, which of course you do. But just tell me about these people. How does somebody become an insect biologist? I can tell you that the ones I reached out to and, and communicated with in the research of this book were really nice people, always very helpful. Uh, nobody kind of withheld information. They were keen about my book and I've, I've rewarded them by sending a copy of the book and it's part of my way of thanking them for their contributions. Um, an entomologist is somebody, is a scientist who studies insects and there's quite a lot of them out there. Unfortunately, a lot of them do work in the context of pest control and this sort of thing. However, there are a lot, nevertheless, or quite a few who are a bit more like me. They like to study behavior and diversity of flies. And those are the ones who I tended to have more communication with just because that's an area that interests me more as well. And that's reflected somewhat in the book. Um, and then you have those who are entomologists and they specialize in flies. Uh, there's one, one who I really enjoyed working with and was really helpful a guy named Steve Marshall at the University of Guelph, which is in Ontario here where I live, a little west of Toronto. And uh, he's, among his many accomplishments, are a, a beautiful 500-page pictorial book with about 2,000 pictures of flies, almost all of which he took using special camera equipment, close-ups of flies that make you realize this is an entire different universe out there of, of, of complex and often really quite stunningly beautiful life forms. Um, he's also involved in describing new species, and uh, so you know, between his writing about flies and his photography, he's made huge contributions to them. Uh, so he's he's representative of the kind of uh, welcome assistance that I got in researching this book. I went to visit him as visit him at his lab, uh, met a couple of his grad students, and these people are incredibly energetic and creative and productive in their work. Ah, oh, that's wonderful. So as we look at flies and insects in general, are they in trouble? We keep hearing about species extinction and uh, climate change and all the various problems that so many beings are having. How about flies and other insects? They are in trouble. Studies, uh, various studies, uh, particularly in Europe, have found that uh, that insect populations are down some 50% in the last 40 to 50 years. Uh, in the last 30 years or so, we've spent billions of dollars to, to kill insects and mere pennies to preserve them. Uh, so maybe we shouldn't be too surprised. I'm noticing it here. Pesticide use. Uh, just the other day, they were spraying pesticides in in a, an area of of lakeshore habitat right near where I live, literally uh, uh, 300 yards away from my door. Uh, the other day, they, I phoned them up. I, I asked some questions and found out they were spraying for poison ivy and wild parsnip, which are toxic uh, to humans, which can be toxic to humans. And uh, But, you know, you've got to figure there's a lot of collateral damage when they do that. Uh, there's a routine pesticide application in my condo building once a year, and I've, I've tried to stop that. I, I succeeded last year. But these, these, these infrastructural situations we have set up, you know, you go to, you go to hardware stores and you see a whole section of, of poisons for, for life, things that are designed to poison and kill life. I just think that's a real shame. I would never reach for any of that stuff. Um, if insects come into my house, uh, I let them go or I, I take them out. I, I have a, a nice little fruit fly trap, which is a humane trap. And 
if we're creative and, and more tolerant of our neighbors and our fellow denizens of the planet, there's always more eco-friendly and animal-friendly ways of dealing with these conflicts when they arise. Yes. Why do you think it's so unusual that some people care? I saw yesterday on Vegans of New York on Facebook, somebody had posted that they had found what they thought to be a crawfish, turned out that's what this being was, on a sidewalk in Brooklyn, and the person wanted to know how to save the crawfish. And I didn't get the the actual ending. I don't know if it was a happy ending or not. I hope it was. But I did see so many people posting and so many people sending suggestions where I think that in a group that perhaps wasn't vegans of somewhere, <laughs> there might not have been that kind of enthusiasm for a creature that most people wouldn't say was cute. Yeah, and some of those people who posted those those thoughtful notes may have had lobster for dinner that night, you know, and not not making the connection between these very close relatives in the in the chain of life. Lobsters and crayfishes are very closely related. Uh, that's one of the hard things to figure out about humans, isn't it? Is that we are so fickle. In one context, we're caring and concerned and thoughtful, and yet in another context, we can be callous or thoughtless. And uh, if I, if, if if someone discovers the formula to what it is that makes some people compassionate or people compassionate at certain times and not at others, um, I hope they can uh, make that available through tablets or something because it would, it would be nice if more of us uh, adopted a more compassionate and tolerant. I mean, we're literally destroying our planet as we speak, you know. Uh, the, the the pandemic, the, the coronavirus pandemic reminds us of our own vulnerability. Uh, we don't run the show. Humans are not a special priority for nature. And I believe that a, a million years after the last humans walking on Earth, a fly is going to be perched on a leaf somewhere cleaning her wings. I don't say that to dis humans. I just say that for the reality that we as slow moving, slow to reproduce, big lumbering mammals are much, much more vulnerable to the perturbations, which ironically we're causing to ourselves than our flies and other insects. Sure, they'll take a hit while we st while we pour and spray pesticides on them, but they're, they're, they can have many, you know, dozens of generations in the time that we have fruit flies have 25 generations in a year. Uh, they are so much more evolutionarily nimble. They will get through whatever we throw at them. Unfortunately, we won't. So we need to change our ways. Mm. And this is a, a question for the ages in our last minute. Where do fruit flies come from? <laughs> the ether. They just pop out of the air. I, it's, it is remarkable. Uh, I eat a lot of fruit, and um, it's, it's pretty much unavoidable. And I have to, I have to confess that, that I maybe I should confess, maybe I should be proud of this. I'm actually thrilled when I see them, and it's like I'm almost a little cavalier about about dealing with them. And I want to see a few more before I start putting my little special trap out and letting them outside. I probably released a hundred, over a hundred fruit flies from my kitchen outside the building in the last uh, five days, and. Um, it's the trap works great because they're so resourceful little creatures, um, but it is amazing. Where do they come? They must be coming in on the fruit somehow. Uh, well, your your actions are bestseller karma. So we're going to break now. Everybody, stay with us. We'll be back with more with Dr. Jonathan Balcom.
Are you looking for a new and empowering lens through which to view your life and your health? Then register now for Get Healthy with Sound, a weekend workshop with Eileen McCusick, an innovator in the fields of therapeutic sound, electric health, and the human biofield. May 24th to 26th at Omega Institute in Rhinebeck, New York. Learn easy and accessible techniques to reduce stress, improve focus, and increase energy. Learn more today at eomega.org slash thrive. We are spiritual beings having a human experience. Welcome to Unity Online Radio, the voice of an awakening world. Welcome back to Main Street Vegan with your host, Victoria Moran. Hey, everybody. Thanks so much for being with us today in this fascinating conversation about flies. And we're going to move into fishes and other incredible beings with Dr. Jonathan Balcombe. The book, if you want to make a note of that, is Superfly, The Unexpected Lives of the World's Most Successful insects and we will put that information and also dr balcom's uh information his website is jonathan hyphen balcom b-a-l-c-o-m-b-e dot com and his facebook page is jonathan balcom author and he is a fabulous author so if you have missed some of the earlier books like what a fish knows and second nature uh, you may want to check those out too so before we continue this dazzling conversation i do want to give a shout out to our sponsor that i haven't done in several weeks and they are the good people of compliment now we're talking complement with the ple in the middle this is a wonderful collection of supplements by vegans for vegans Pamela Ferguson, PhD dietitian in Canada, is part of this. Matt Fraser, the no meat athlete. Dr. Joel Kahn, cardiologist, professor at Wayne State University. And in the complement family, you can go super simple with basic complement. That is your B12, D3, omega 3 fatty acids, and vitamin K2. Simple squirt. Or you can have in liquid form or tablet form a complement plus and complement complete that provides some additional nutrients that vegans could theoretically have a little trouble getting zinc, selenium, some of those things. So do check out the website lovecomplement.com and you can save yourself 10% if you put in the discount box Main Street in all capital letters. So to your health, and back to our wonderful, wonderful guest, Jonathan Balcom, PhD. So, Dr. Balcom, you mentioned that mosquitoes are also flies, and I'll bet anything you lost some of us there. So tell us about mosquitoes, and how can we be anything other than, gosh, I wish they'd go away? Yeah. Well, yeah, they're flies, all right, and they're very successful. There's uh, an estimated about 3,500 known species of mosquitoes. Only a handful, only a few um, come after our blood. 
Um, that many of them feed on other other species, usually mammals, but there's some that feed on frogs, for instance. Um, what can I say about them? I mean, obviously, almost all the encounters we have with them are negative. I mean, I went hiking in the woods last Saturday, as I do pretty much every weekend here in Ontario, and by this time of year, they're they're omnipresent. Well, not omnipresent, but they're very abundant in the woodlands, and particularly if it's wet. Uh, and it can be daytime, it could be nighttime, and you know I got attacked by by a fair number of them. It's part of being a Canadian, I guess. Um, there's some 15,000 mosquitoes on Earth for every human, by you know just a crude estimate. Um, I did a little math and estimate that their feeding habitat for, for, on humans is about 4,600 square miles of human skin. So it's a pretty big habitat with all the humans on Earth, and um, uh, they make the best of that. But it's got to be one of the most dangerous job descriptions of any animal is to approach, land on harpoon and try and steal blood from a, a large alert mammal with slapping hands and chemical defenses and such. Nevertheless, they do it and they do it successfully. And I have to marvel, marvel at them for that, that they're able to successfully and so often scalp us and we're, we're we're we can lose a good night's sleep and we can lose a good amount of blood in some some settings so they're incredibly good at what they do i'm afraid of mosquitoes um my little dog when we adopted him had heartworm disease which i believe the mosquito was the vector for that and recently we had the what was the the disease that affected pregnant women so terribly and then we all know about malaria. So how do they get to be such disease carriers? Yeah, it's like they've been taken advantage of by much smaller microorganisms, microbes that cause you know dengue and leishmaniasis and encephalitis and of course the infamous malaria. Um, you know, there was a there was a book published uh, a year and a half ago called Mosquito, and it was written by a historian. And uh, if you read that book, it's really sobering just how much mosquitoes with their vector abilities have influenced the outcome of wars. Uh, they've influenced biogeography and probably continue to do so. Um, until the 20th century, most soldiers in the battlefield died from insect-borne diseases, many, many more so than by wounds from enemy fire or what have you. So they've really played a big role. And, and the author of that book, Timothy Weingard, estimates that of about 112, about 110 billion humans who've ever walked the earth, almost half of them, I think it's something like 52 billion, so just less than half of them are thought to have succumbed to mosquito-borne illnesses. So, yeah, I mean, there's reasons to be scared of them. I mean, I'm not scared of them up here in the in the in the in the temperate zones where we get harsher winters um, and these these diseases don't seem to flourish here but you go more towards the equator into tropical zones and it's a it's a big deal and it's becoming a bigger deal with climate change and warming of the planet it's causing uh, insects including mosquitoes and other species to in some cases expand their range and of course that that spells trouble for these diseases that are usually associated with tropical tropical zones Fascinating. And I find that people come on this show like you with their fabulous books that I want to read. And then they talk about other fabulous books that I want to read. And I keep thinking, 
can't the world just go vegan so I could retire and read? I mean, this just <laughs> sounds absolutely fascinating. So um, let's back up a little bit. I know that you were on before uh, with the book, What a Fish Knows, and we will put in the show notes at MainStreetVegan.net uh, a link to that episode as well. But fishes are cool. So give us a little uh, replay on that. Sure. Yeah. Fishes were also a great fun subject to research and write a book about. Uh, there's surprisingly a lot of really neat science, which completely blows apart so many of the uh, assumptions we have about these creatures. Uh, you know, people still commonly believe that they they don't feel pain, and and there's this good science that clearly refutes that. But beyond that, I mean, their social lives, uh, their ability to reason, to solve problems, to recognize things, to fall for optical illusions, to recognize our faces, to cooperate with each other, not just within species but across species, to use tools, to plan. The list goes on of their achievements. And really, uh, after four years of researching and writing about this group of animals, this diverse, successful group of vertebrates, more kinds of fishes on Earth than all the others combined. Uh, I was completely convinced, and I remain so, that fishes are fully, um, fully, full members of the vertebrate group, and their their various accomplishments, social, behavioral, cognitive, emotional, etc., rival those of any other group of vertebrates. They are far more complex and deserving of our respect and consideration than most people believe. Tell the story of the fishes who have scale cleaning businesses. <laughs> yeah, businesses is a good word. Good word to use in that. It really is a business business like relationship. This is the famous cleaner client mutualism mutualism, which is probably one of the, one of the most well studied and in, in described symbioses in nature. It happens on reefs, and it involves many different kinds of fishes. And the most famous of the cleaners is the blue striped cleaner wrasse. But there's there's different creatures, including some non-fish, such as shrimp, who also act as cleaners. And then there's so-called client fishes, uh, fishes who will line up to wait their turn to enter a cleaning station where these cleaners ply their trade. They're very small little fish. And it's a it's a classic mutualism where both species benefit. The cli- the cleaners remove parasites, um, you know, sea lice and ticks and mites and other things, bits of algae and sloughing skin and anything that's not desirable from the client's perspective. So they get food, and in return, the client, of course, gets a parasite removal service and a spa treatment. And the spa treatment can include uh, gratuitous caresses by the cleaner fishes who will will pause from their cleaning services to uh, flutter a pectoral, pectoral fin against the, the client. They may be more, more inclined to do that when they're trying to impress other clients in the queue. It's been noticed that the cleaners do a better job when there are fewer clients, when there are more clients in the queue. Presumably this is to maintain higher eBay ratings than if they <laughs> didn't. And they tend to do a more shoddy job if there aren't others waiting. So there's a great deal of Machiavellian awareness going on here. It's a very complex situation. There's a great deal of trust. The clients are often predatory fishes, including sharks and pufferfish and the like, who could easily chomp down and just 
just eat these cleaner asses. And yet they open their mouths and their gill covers and the cleaner asses bravely venture inside to remove the parasites. And, uh, you know, as per, as per maintaining good business relations, relations uh, clients are not, not known to, to eat their, their cleaners. They sometimes get annoyed at them and they may chase them away if they do a bad job, if they mucus nip, for instance, where they take a little mote of that slimy outer layer on this, over the scales, which is protective and apparently quite nutritious and tasty to the cleaners. So um, it's, it's a complex relationship that isn't always purely uh, honest. Sometimes there's some dishonesty and dis- deception that goes on. Which which is utterly fascinating. Now, so one of the past times that you were on this program, um, that we had another guest with us, Mary Finelli, who has a, a lovely organization called Fish Feel. And that brings me to a question for you as a biologist and an ethologist. Do fishes have feelings? Absolutely, they do. They have a, a complex nervous system. They're full members of the vertebrate group, so they have the same kind of complexity, all the same body systems of other vertebrates. They just happen to evolved, have evolved in a slightly alien environment to those of us who breathe air. And that's probably worked against them because we've only recently developed technologies such as underwater cinematography and scuba gear where we can properly observe them in their own, in their own realms. Um, but you know, just to give you an example of the of the feelings they can demonstrate, you can measure st- st- the stress hormone cortisol, for instance. So you can measure stress in the blood of, of of any animal, and all vertebrates have this cortisol, uh, which is associated with stressful feelings. And you can easily, unfortunately, from the fish's perspective, stress a fish. Just catching them and removing them from their homes is stressful enough. But you can you can put them in a shallow b- bucket of water subject them to being out of the water for short periods and they become very stressed and not surprisingly that's shown by this high level of cortisol. But one study done by a research team from the University of Lisbon showed that apropos fishes having feelings that stressed fishes would act to relieve their stress if they were given the opportunity to receive a caress from uh, a model of a cleaner ass. So this study was designed on what I was just talking about, about the the caresses that cleaners will give to their clients to apparently mollify them or curry favor with their with their other clients in the queue. Uh, so when these researchers stressed these poor surgeon fishes who were caught in the Great Barrier Reef, um, they gave them the, when the when the stressed fish had an opportunity to receive caresses from a, a fake uh, a fake cleaner wrasse, a model one, very realistic painted model that was hooked up to a motor that could deliver a, a motion to the fish, so therefore could could get a stroke when it when it swam up against it. They took advantage of that. They 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 averaged 15 visits per hour to that cleaner cleaner wrasse to get their caresses, and their stress levels went down markedly back towards baseline. Whereas the control group who were put in a tank with a cleaner model cleaner wrasse that didn't have a motor to move it. They ignored it. They didn't swim much to it at all. They didn't touch it, and their stress levels remained high. I find that a remarkable study, and I'm, I'm happy to say that the scientists returned all of the, I think it was 32 striped surgeon fishes in the study. They returned them all to their original homes on the reef. That is good, and oh my goodness, that was such a powerful story because that's what we do. We have stress, we want a caress, we want somebody to listen to us, we want some comfort food. I mean, it's it's not 
different. It's, it's frighteningly not different. It's sobering, isn't it, when you consider how poorly we treat hundreds of billions and possibly over a trillion fishes a year in commercial fishing and aquaculture operations where they're treated like uh, so many blocks of wood, just widgets without feeling and they die by crushing and, and, and suffocation and uh, decompression and exsanguination and uh, it's, it's, it's very sobering when you consider what they're capable of and how we treat them commercially. Do you see much in the way of people turning from eating fish? I know certainly um, veganism, vegetarianism, you know, overall is a big deal, but it seems that a lot of people still think fish is something very necessary for humans. Yeah. Or, or very I, necessary for their lifestyle. Right. And it's hard to break those habits. And uh, I, I, I'm not seeing a lot of change in the eating habits vis-a-vis -vis fishes and, and humans. However, what I am noticing is a very, very much a clear rise in concern and uh, the presence of fishes in animal rights, animal welfare campaigns. There are organizations springing up in India and elsewhere whose mission is to protect sea creatures and not just sea mammals, but, 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 but particularly fishes, and to investigate aquaculture operations, to draw attention to what's happening in commercial fishing. I mean, the, book, the film Seaspiracy just came out and you know, made a big impact. And uh, there's another film that just came out, which I'm proud to say I'm, I'm in briefly, and it's called The Dark Hobby. And it's a, it's a critique of and an expose of the uh, aquarium fish industry. So there's, while our eating habits vis-a-vis -vis fishes are not quite changing yet, and I say yet, hopefully, because there is a, the fishes are part of that whole new technology coming up with the cell-based uh, uh, so-called clean meat where tuna cells and other animal other fish cells are being used to create um, meat from from these creatures that never involves a fishing net or a, a gaffing hook or what have you so that's definitely a sector that's rising and it's good to see that that technology is going to become available because um, I'm hopeful that these growing campaigns and the growing the visibility of what goes on um, in fishing and fish production will will lead to more people choosing to to change their eating habits. Yes, and I'm so glad you mentioned the dark hobby. I watched that as well, and you were fabulous. But can you just give us a a, a little condensation of of that? Because I think most people, even vegans, don't think there's any problem with how the beautiful tropical fish got to the neighbor's fish tank. Yeah, indeed. I, I didn't until I learned more about it. Uh, unfortunately, the tropical fish industry is, is a little bit like the cut flower industry where you, you take flowers and you basically watch them die. Now, I don't mean to be negative about cut flowers. They probably are not sentient. So the, the, the moral landscape here is very different. But fishes are very clearly sentient. And unfortunately, most of the fishes who are end up in pet shops and people's aquariums are wild caught. They're wildlife. And they just don't fare well. It's estimated that uh, only 10% survive the journey from original captor to the, say, the pet shop somewhere in, 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 in another part of the world, say, from the Philippines to Europe or or Hawaii to the main, main, uh, mainland of the United States. These are big markets. And of those 90, of those 10% who survive, 
uh, about 90% of them are going to be dead after the, within about a year of being in an aquarium. Not because people are necessarily cruel or callous, but they probably, they often just don't have the, have the ability to care for them enough to provide. It's pretty hard to, to match uh, a, a wild habitat, especially if it's a, you know, 10, 20 yards deep in the, in the ocean, on an ocean shoreline. Pretty hard to match that in a, th- in a two foot, three foot deep aquarium in someone's home. So, it's rife with problems in terms of the mortality rates and the ill treatment of these fishes going from source to to destination. Well, it is wonderful that we have these documentaries because they just bring out ideas that people might not read a book about or might not have a, another way of knowing about. So that's a, a really wonderful one for, for the list. So in your line of work, you know, we think animal behaviorist it almost brings to mind skinner somebody doing experimental awful things on animals and yet you come to this study of ethology as a vegan and as a person with the biggest heart imaginable so just in our last few minutes give us a little bit of your history and how you got to be who you are yeah, you know, if there's a gene for loves animals and or, you know, really cares for them or feels for them, uh, I inherited that gene for whatever reason. And there, there, I, there, I have a few ancestors in my family tree who showed signs of, of interest. And yet, and yet my mother's maiden name is Skinner. And so presumably there were also people who were pulling the skins off of animals somewhere in my in my line. So it's strange how, how genetics works. But I do feel like I... I was born with an innate uh, sensitivity and uh, compassion for other creatures. From my earliest memories, I, I was I could identify. I was I was far more alienated by a, another little kid squashing an ant than I was by the little creature under their foot. Um, so I was always cut out for being concerned for and wanting to help animals. I, I like to describe them as my clients. You know, they don't they don't pay me in the traditional way, but they pay me so much more richly through the through the experiences and the the ability to the, the opportunity to study them and watch them and observe them and write about them, wow! It's such a privilege and a treat to do that. I feel very lucky that I'm I have the resources and I've had the life path that's allowed me to be the be the be a conduit sometimes to to go in front of an audience and to 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 tell them stuff that will hopefully and often does raise eyebrows and drop jaws because. Most of us just aren't aware of what's going on, and uh, it's really fun to be to be the one to deliver some of that information to others. Yeah, the bearer of good tidings. <laughs> I <laughs> hope that they will identify that gene that you have, and that so many people listening to this podcast have, and and then we can just get it into everybody. Wouldn't that make for a better world? So you wrote to me, Jonathan, something that was so positive. And you seem like you also have a positivity gene along with your animal-loving gene. But you wrote, I'm excited about the growing awareness that eating animals is connected to climate change, biodiversity loss, pandemics, that it is a dead end for humanity, and that animals are sentient and they matter morally. So... I'm excited about the growing awareness, but I'm sitting here looking out at the world and thinking it may be growing, but it's still almost invisible. 
what can we do to stretch it? Soldier on. Uh, we can <laughs> we can just keep at it. We can we can be uh, gentle examples by our own lifestyle choices. And I found that you know it's sort of like what we learn in physics or in chemistry. I guess it is for every act. Physics for every action, there's an equal and opposite reaction. If we get too pushy and preachy, it's just the human ego that they push back. So I, it just doesn't work to be that way. So we have to be creative about uh, making veganism and making um, animal-friendly living appealing. We we need to be a we need to be a demographic that other people want to join. We need to keep uh, working away at. at getting rid of these 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 old biases that you know veganism is a sacrifice and all this stuff it's just so deeply ingrained it's sort of like the idea that that you have to drink cow's milk to get calcium it's just not the case but it's ingrained and so we're still working against the forces but i'm encouraged when i turn on the tv i'm watching a sporting event and then i see an ad for beyond meat or i see an ad for for one another plant-based milk um you know, 10 years ago, you'd never see that, never ever saw that kind of stuff. So when anything hits mainstream television media, primetime television, that's a very clear measure in my books that change is, is coming. And of course, as you and I know, it can't come soon enough. Um, but we need to we need to grab hold of the encouraging stuff and focus on that. We need to pop up some champagne corks every once in a while. The animal movement often spends too much time mired in, in negative stuff. And, of course, there's a lot of that out there. But we also need to celebrate our victories, and there are more and more of them all the time. Wow, that's exciting. Okay, well, I just had the uh, invisible champagne shared with you. Now, in in our final minute or so... What book are you working on now? Well, I've had I've had a couple that I've been working on. I've got some ideas, and I'm still kind of batting them around. But just earlier this week, I started working on a, a book of fiction, uh, which may or may not come to fruition because I, I haven't done much fiction writing, but it's exciting to try. Um, I'm thinking of it as, as a younger reader book about a couple of rats, their adventures as part of an experiment of putting rats on islands and then trying to kill them, which is what some conservationists have be, been doing. This is in the te- in the context of the so-called invasive species issue. Uh, and these rats, it's about their adventures. Um, so it's sort of based on re- some real scientific experiments, but of course I've personalized the rats. And So that's one possibility. Another is a young reader's version of what a fish knows uh, really cool facts about about fishes for for teenagers or people of that kind of middle school age. Uh, you know, I did all that research for grown ups with what a fish knows, but it would be fun to have a book uh, that makes it much more uh, digestible for a younger reader. So those are a couple of ideas I'm working on. Oh, that sounds like fun. And I will read your books, even if they're picture books for five years old, five year olds. <laughs> Jonathan Balcom, PhD. Thank you so very much. Everybody, you got to get a copy of Superfly. This is a really cool book. Thank you all so much for listening. And thanks to Unity Online Radio as ever. To everyone listening, God bless you. Eat your veggies. Thank you for listening. This is Unity Online Radio, the voice of an awakening world.
Hi, I'm Liz Winter and I have been a medium and a spiritual development teacher for over 30 years. On my podcast, All Aboard the Medium Ship, I want to share the message with you that there is a wealth of love and comfort available to you from the spirit world. On my podcast, you can experience this comfort and peace for yourself through gentle guided meditations and helpful messages. Make sure you subscribe and follow so you never miss an episode. Part of the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network.